Good morning. How are you doing today? Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. We're going to um, begin a new series this morning um, that will take us through the Epistle of Colossians. This is only a five-week series, so what we're going to do is hit the high points of this four-chapter epistle book, and I think it'll be a powerful uh, five weeks. And we're not leaving our intentional theme that we have launched to uh, this uh, calendar year. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional as we look through uh, Colossians, and our goal is to, to understand how to live a life that's worth living, and then how to live a life that's worth inviting others into. And so this morning, as we begin this study of Colossians, it's all about gazing into the supremacy of Jesus Christ and being awestruck by him. So I want to encourage you right now, kind of take a moment mentally. I know that you come here and you're disheveled sometimes and busy and hurried. If you've got little kids, you know, thank God you're even here. Amen, right? And so just take a moment and go, I'm going to set my heart now towards Christ. I'm going to set the direction of my heart to receive from you this morning, Lord Jesus, and I'm going to declare your supremacy among the people. Say amen. I'm going to do that. I'm going to settle my spirit down, and I'm going to focus on you this morning and be very intentional that way. We have a great resource for you. I talked about this last week. I'm going to uh, give you the spiel again this morning, but we've written up a a Colossian study guide to go with this five-week series that's free. And uh, Serenity Miller put this together from the materials I gave her that we're going to be covering each week. And then Virginia put it into publishing form. And it's just a wonderful, first-rate study guide. So you can walk out of here after church, pick one of these up at the uh, small group kiosk or the information center. What we try to do is just put them everywhere so you can't miss them, okay? And they're free. Did I say that? Do you, do you understand that? Don't try to pay anybody. If you really want to pay somebody, just see me after church, and I'll give it to the building fund. How's that? Anyway, um, but, but please use these. And, and, and what, what I want you to do over the next five weeks is immerse yourself into Colossians. Let some truth pop out of this powerful epistle that maybe you don't think about much and you ought to be thinking about. Let it begin to stir in your spirit maybe some new understanding of who Christ is and what he's all about. Just immerse yourself. Do some immersion kind of uh, thinking for the next five weeks and be very intentional in following along uh, with what's going on here on Sunday mornings. Now, let me start with some background today. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to the church in um, uh, Colossae. Uh, Colossae was located in Central Asia. Neighboring towns were Laodicea and Heropolis. Colossae was on the decline because a new road had been built. Now travelers were bypassing this little town and going to the neighboring towns of Heropolis and, and, and Laodicea. Um, it was about 19 years ago that the, that the Lord called our family to Williston, North Dakota to pastor New Hope Westland. Williston, it's right in the middle of the recent North Dakota boom, right? You know about the North Dakota boom, the oil boom, right? You, you know about that, right? Okay, some of you know about that. If you've never driven up in northern North Dakota, you ought to take a drive up there. It's really, really memorable now because there's oil wells every quarter mile, and they burn the natural gas because they don't know what to do with it. It's, it's, it's really a good place to drive at night. It's eerie. There's flames coming out of the earth all over the place. Anyway, um, so we're moving up to Williston, North Dakota, right? But we're moving up there during the bust. 
It's not a good time. The town had just experienced uh, another oil kind of wave coming through and leaving kind of thing. And so we're driving our big old moving van up there, and we pull into a, a, a gas station, and I walk in, and I begin to talk to the attendant in the gas station, and she said, what are you all doing? And I said, we're moving to Williston. And she said this, word for word, why would anyone move here? I'm, st- I'm a person. I'm standing here, you know. I'm at her. But she just said that because the town was so discouraged and, and so busted by the recent oil boom that had just left them that they would, she wondered why anyone would even think about moving there. And I thought, welcome to Northwest North Dakota, the middle of nowhere, a discouraged place. You know, and I think, I think Colossi felt that way. I think they were a bit discouraged about what was going on in their town and now that they were being bypassed. In addition to that, they were being challenged by some heretical teaching. Now, when I use the word heretical or heresy, I simply mean that which is contrary to accepted belief. So in the Christian faith, it would mean that which is contrary to accepted Christian doctrine or truth. They were experiencing some heretical attack, so to speak. So they're discouraged, they're experiencing some of this attack, and Paul writes them the letter of Colossians. And basically, in the letter of Colossians, he's addressing two heretical challenges. It's not obvious here, but he's addressing two heretical challenges. And I'm going to give those to you and explain them. Uh, I think it's worth our time. First of all, there was this heretical challenge of appeasing that was happening. Appeasing, okay? And what this means was, I have acceptance with God through rituals, such as circumcision and food regulations or a certain feast um, observation or whatever. Appeasing means I try to satisfy or placate, you know, uh, by meeting a demand. Um, And so it had its roots in a mis- a misapplication of Judaism. Some thought, you know what? You Christians don't, you're not doing enough. In order to appease and placate God, you, you have to add some rituals into what you're doing. You, you, your guy's got to be circumcised. You've got to observe certain feast days. This needs to be incorporated into the Christian faith. And as we're going to see in a few moments when I read from Colossians chapter 1, Paul doesn't really even talk about this. Instead, what he does is he simply says Christ is supreme. He satisfies everything. In him, you're complete. You don't need to add anything. So instead of really addressing all what I'm going to talk about here, point by point, Paul just simply says, gaze upon Jesus. He fulfills all. He satisfies all requirements of righteousness. You see, we live in a culture, we live in church culture even, where there's this constant pull. It's kind of like gravity. It's constantly tugging on us to, to add something to the simple message of Christ. To add a, 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 a methodology, you got to do it this way. Or to add a ritual, you got to do it this way. Uh, and, and we have to be laser focused, folks, that it's all about Jesus Christ. Amen? You need to say amen to that. All right, there's a lot of you, but you're still Midwesterners. All right, amen. We can add nothing but Christ. We need nothing but Christ. Nothing but Christ. The next heresy challenge is something that I think is still alive and well. 
Today, it had its origins in Gnosticism, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. It was a false religion at, at that time, was very mystical, and it was seeping, uh, seeking to infiltrate uh, the movement of, of God in the Colossian church. Let me give you the point, and then I'll talk about it. This heresy is all about achieving, achieving. And this is acceptance with God through doing. This is acceptance with God through doing. Appeasing is acceptance with God by... by um, observance of certain feast days and circumcision. Achieving is acceptance with God uh, through striving, through doing works, through, through trying to be good. And, and the, specifically with Gnosticism, it was spiritual perfection through secret initiations. The ancient heresy of Gnosticism had basically two false premises. First, it espoused a dualism to life, a dualism to life. And basically this dualism said this, there's this material part and there's this spiritual part. The two are separate. The material part is bad, 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 bad. Nothing good over here. So you know what? You know, you could do whatever gross sin you want. You can do whatever you want over here. Doesn't matter. You're bad. You can do bad things because there's nothing to do with the spiritual thing. And then there's a the spiritual side of life over here. And everything will be merry right over there. Anyway, and so what they did. It was a misapplication of this idea that we can't do anything to earn our salvation, can we? Right? We're saved by grace through faith. Amen, right? But a misapplication of that is to say, okay, I guess the material is all bad and I can do any old gross sin I want over here and it doesn't matter. That is so wrong. That is not at all That's what's being taught there in the Christian faith and doctrine. Do you know that Gnosticism in this dualism is alive and well still in our day and age? We just don't call it that. Years ago, when I was at New Hope, a friend of mine came to me and said, Pastor Steve, I would like you to read this position paper from my mother's church. They're accepting and doing some things that are pretty questionable, and this position paper supposedly says why. And he was trying to talk to his mom about it intelligently and all that. And I really didn't want to get in the middle of their family discussions on that stuff, especially about another denomination. I don't do that. But I said, sure, show me the denominational paper. I'll read it and I'll tell you what I think. And he brings the paper to me. It's 24 pages long. <sighs> yeah, it was way too long. So I read this position paper. And the first thing I notice is no reference anywhere to any scripture. So they were saying these questionable behaviors are okay to do, but there's no scripture. Got that? That's a red flag. Amen, right? Would you agree with me on that? But here is what the paper essentially said, and this is what really bothered me. What the paper basically said was, we're all really bad. Everyone does really bad things. Who are we to judge anybody else for doing a bad thing? We can't do that. In this life, since we're all so bad and everything's so bad, what we're called to do is just accept everybody else, no matter what they're doing. Understanding that in the life to come, everything will be made right. What does that sound like? Come on, what does it sound like? Gnosticism in the modern version. They're saying the world is a big bad place. Anything goes, don't worry about it. And the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do is judge somebody else. Because in the life to come, everything will be made right. Is that what Christ says at all? Is that the teachings of the Bible at all? No. Because we're told in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's creation. We are God's art. 
Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. To live an entirely different life. To live a sanctified, holy life devoted unto the Lord Jesus Christ, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you can't earn your salvation. You can't do some things. You can't achieve it by your good works. But once you are saved and you are filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, you are no longer the same person. You are a new creation and you are designed by God to live a different life. Amen? And we can't just blow that off. There is no dualism like the Gnostics promoted in the Bible. There is no material bad, spiritual good, the two don't mix. There's none of that. You become a new creation in Christ and you begin to live the new life out immediately. Now, secondly, the Gnostics claim to have an elevated knowledge, a higher truth, known only to a certain few. The Gnosticism term comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. Um, They claim we have special high knowledge, secret knowledge. It's not from the Bible. It's acquired by this mystical plane of existence understanding. I don't even know what that means. So they saw themselves as a privileged class, elevated above everybody else. Uh, by their higher, deeper knowledge uh, of God. And they taught that you, if you're going to gain spiritual perfection, you've got to go through our secret initiation rites, whatever they were and looked like. In a sense, what they're saying is you get right with God by doing some things and achieving some things. Listen, we have to watch out for this achieving thing in our culture. We're into this achieving thing like crazy. You watch the Olympics, what's the message? You can do anything you set your mind to. You just work hard and you can what? Achieve it. No way I'm ever going to skate like one of those figure skaters, ever. I can set my mind on that, and I can work eight hours a day. I'll never look like them. Some of you should say amen. (laughs) If I can't get an amen for a theological point, I'll get an amen for that kind of point. Amen? Amen. And you could set your mind on that. You could say, I'm going to be one of these crazy slope skier guys that flips all over the place. I can't even do a backflip on a trampoline. Got what I'm saying there? Not going to happen. And, and, and we live in this constant tug to pull us into this mindset. I can do anything if I just set my mind to it. No, you can't. I don't want to burst your bubble. No, you can't. This doesn't work that way. Gnosticism contradicted the teachings of Christ at every turn. And, 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 and Paul doesn't bother refuting them point by point. He gets to this overarching understanding that Jesus is all-sufficient. But understand this. Just get this with clarity. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, not by any secret initiation right, not by appeasing, not by achieving. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Behind Gnosticism, then, is this general heresy of achieving. So we have to watch out for the heresies of appeasing in achieving, amen? I try to make this easy for you. Watch out for the heresies of what? Appeasing and achieving. Watch out. That's not how it works. It works by having faith in Jesus Christ and standing in that alone. So here's Paul's general approach to the book of Colossians. Instead of refuting each false teaching point by point, Paul showed the Colossian believers that all righteousness is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And the goal of our series is simply this then. Colossians calls us to the primacy of Jesus, calls us to the centrality of Jesus. It calls us to the simplicity of Jesus. Our faith is all about Jesus. Amen? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You got this? Jesus and nothing more. 
Jesus is adequate. He fulfills all. And when we get to this primacy of Jesus, then we will experience a life worth living and a life worth inviting others into. So here we go. We're ready to begin this morning by looking at the supremacy of Christ uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I'm going to read this for you, but just set your hearts now, amen? Set your hearts on this scripture. Let it penetrate into your soul and the way you think about Christ. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, but making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So here's our big thought today. In all ways, Jesus is supreme. Amen? In all ways, he is supreme. Years ago, when I was a young man in my late teens, I worked for a, 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 a pizza place called Shakey's Pizza Parlor. I was a cook. And the ultimate pizza we had at that time was called the Supreme. And if you go to any pizza place, they're going to all have a Supreme pizza, right? So what it meant at Shakey's Pizza Parlor to serve you a Supreme pizza was simply this. We just took every single ingredient we had available and threw it on that pizza. In fact, that's how we made the Supreme pizza. Whatever was there that day went on the pizza. So the pizza would usually contain salami and pepperoni and sausage and hamburger and Canadian bacon. Then you would throw on all the vegetables you had, green peppers and onions and olives and mushrooms. That's all we had back then. They didn't put spinach on pizza back then. Did you know that? That's a recent invention. Now we put spinach on everything, don't we? Back then, we didn't think you ate spinach. We didn't even, Popeye the sailor man, he ate spinach. Nobody else ate spinach. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? If you're older, especially Popeye, Popeye the sailor man. Right, anyway, you know what I'm saying. So we'd make the supreme pizza. It'd be about a half inch thick. It was just, you know, really a cholesterol builder for people. At any rate, Jesus is our supreme pizza, so to speak. He doesn't lack one ingredient. He contains all the needed ingredients for salvation and for life to the full. He lacks no ingredient that's essential for life. He lacks nothing. And Paul could have listed all the tenets and all the errors of the heresies of Gnosticism and, and, and the misapplied Judaism, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he just says, gaze on Christ. Look at who he is. Be intentional. See Jesus. And none of these other things will affect you. If you know Jesus thoroughly, then the false teachings 
won't affect you. We live basically now in a cashless society. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, most of you probably have a credit card. I couldn't get a credit card when I was in college. You know why? I had no credit. They denied me. Now, anybody can get a credit card back. Then, you know what we lived on? Cash. I remember when Vicky and I started doing some um, budgeting, we had envelopes, and we'd put cash in them. And for each month, you'd take out the cash. And guess what? When the cash ran out, you were done with that category. It was very visible and very uh, good teacher. But back in the day, I remember talking to some bankers, um, and they said they never, ever taught their tellers to look for counterfeit money. They never said, well, here's a counterfeit bill, recognize that, here's a counterfeit bill, recognize that. He said, you know why? Because they handle the real thing so much, we told them, if it doesn't feel real and look right to you, it's probably counterfeit because you're handling the real thing all day long. Now, I understand that the counterfeiters get more sophisticated and the fake money gets better, but you get what I'm saying here. And what Paul was saying was, I could talk with you on all the counterfeit stuff and all that kind of thing, but instead, I just want you to know the real Jesus. If you know the real Jesus, you're going to know when something's counterfeit. So we're going to spend a few moments looking at the supremacy ingredients here listed in in, uh, Colossians 1. And we're going to look at the real thing. And here's what we're going to do. At the end of each one of these points, I'm going to ask for a worship response, which means you have to participate with me. Amen? That means you have to speak out loud, loudly, first time. Amen? Amen. Thank you. So here we go. Ingredient number one, he is the image of the invisible God. Image just means a direct expression of, the embodiment of, personal manifestation of, the incarnation of. Jesus is God in flesh. You see Jesus, you see God. No needs for secret rituals like Gnosticism proposed. There's no need for rules to, to appease God like misapplied Judaism proposed. When you get Jesus, you get God. Amen? You see Jesus, you see God. God's made himself known. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's our worship response. We worship you, Jesus, because you are the image of the invisible God. You need to read that and say that with me. Here we go. We worship you, Jesus, because you are the image of the invisible God. Amen? Let that soak into your heart. Let it direct you. Let it direct your thoughts. Next, Colossians 1 says this. Jesus is creator and sustainer. If you were to go over to the Gospel of John, the creative side of Jesus is really emphasized. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus is part of the triune God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Who's more supreme to creation than the creator? Amen? Over my years as as an engineer at 3M, I built hundreds of machines, designed and built hundreds of machines. And I remember my first machine. It was a a tabletop laminator, just a small little machine, had 30 parts. It's being built for the pilot plant so they could laminate samples of tape together to see if they stuck or not. So it looked like a glorified old school washing machine ringer kind of thing, okay? So I designed and built this thing and I get 30 parts put together into this assembly drawing and it's kind of built. And I gave it to one of our, our senior specialists there and said, would you just check this over to make sure I didn't make any dumb mistakes? So he takes my prints And he basically does this. I don't know if you can see this very well. He paints them red. And then he comes out one day, about two days after I gave him the prints, and he says, "Ah, 
Attention, everybody. Norby gave me these prints. I'm not kidding you. He said it just like that. And everybody started laughing and snickering. And he said, I don't know what we're getting anymore from new engineers, but this is horrendously terrible work. Mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And I'm over there dying. I don't know what's going on. And Earl just went on and on and on and on. And um, about an hour after he did this presentation, I'm sitting there thinking, man, they must have, I just must have really did a terrible job. He comes over to me and says, good job. You had a couple little minor tolerance mistakes, but everything else was perfect. I said, you dog. So much for a safe work environment. So much for community and kumbaya and teamwork. I went through the school of humiliation. That's how I was taught. Not a very good teacher, actually. But, you know, he was, he was this old-time, old-school engineer, and he wanted to make sure he put me in, in my place. He did a good job of doing that. But you know what? I knew that machine. Even that little tabletop laminator to today, I, can, I remember the parts. Why? Because I was its creator. I knew every part intimately. I knew how they worked. I knew how they fit together. So when Jesus is described as your and my creator, that means he knows us intimately. He knows how we're supposed to function. He knows how we're held together. He knows what makes us go. He's our creator. Not only that, he's our sustainer. If Jesus were to be removed, if the Holy Spirit were to be removed from us, if God were to be no more, boom, we're gone. We dissolve into nothingness because he holds everything together. So here's our worship response. Say it with me after I say it to you first. We worship you, Jesus, our creator and sustainer. Now say it with me. We worship you, Jesus, our creator and sustainer. Next point, he is the head of the body. This is obvious, but without the head, the body ceases. It dies. The head is vital to the body. It's the brains of the operation. It's the control center. Jesus is in charge of everything when this term is given to him. He's the director of bodily functions. If you were to go over to 1 Corinthians 12, you would read about this idea that you and I, when we become followers of Christ, are part of the body of Christ, and we're filled with the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit fills us, and he gifts us, and he gives us parts to play in the body of Jesus Christ, parts that we're supposed to uh, manifest and fulfill. And as we come together like this, we are then representative of Jesus Christ. We are the body, but there's one head, amen? If you have two heads, what's that called? A monster, right? There's one head over the church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have our parts to do, and praise be to God that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 14, verse 16, we're told this, the, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said. So you know what? Not only does the Holy Spirit give us a part to play and to do us with special spiritual giftedness, but we're in connection with the head. He tells us. He communicates with us. The head is talking to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's pretty important, isn't it? Ready? We worship you, Jesus, as our head. Say it with me. We worship you, Jesus, as our head. Fourthly, he is the firstborn over creation and from among the dead. Firstborn title means an awful lot in Scripture. Firstborn title means an awful lot in Scripture. It means uh, the place of, of uh, privilege and authority. It's used all over in the Bible to designate special privilege and authority. In fact, if you were to go to Exodus chapter 4, the Lord told that ancient patriarch Moses, 
um, to tell Pharaoh uh, of Egypt, uh, who had enslaved the Israelites, the following words. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Do you see that language? That means my son of privilege, my son of special authority. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you will refuse to let him go, and I will kill your firstborn son. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. This means that he has superiority and authority. He's above creation and power and oversight. All things have been created through him and unto him. In his incarnation, Jesus is called the firstborn of what God was up to. And the angels, they worshiped him as the firstborn of God and what he's up to. In his resurrection, Jesus is titled with firstborn from the dead, indicating that we will follow and experience that same power that raised him from the dead will raise you and me from the dead also. Firstborn implies that Christ is our pattern. He is God's perfect son. And we as followers are foreordained to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when the saints gather like this, the, the title of, of, of firstborn is used on us. And Hebrews chapter 12 does that very thing. We are called the church of the firstborns whose names are written in heaven. Firstborn means an awful lot, amen. We just don't use it in our culture that way. But in the Hebrew culture, it meant a lot. Worship you, Jesus, as the firstborn. Would you say that with me? We worship you, Jesus, as the firstborn. And then lastly, through him, Reconciliation has been made. Jesus shed blood on the cross, atoned for our sins, and we are reconciled to God. When Adam and Eve sinned, and sin entered into creation, they hid from God. And mankind has been hiding from God ever since. But we have been reconciled through Christ's shed blood back to the Father. And no more hiding is needed. Amen? I see an awful lot of people hiding. Why are we hiding? We do not need to hide from God. He has reconciled us to Christ's shed blood. No more hiding, no more hiding. So here's our worship response. We worship you, Jesus, for you have reconciled us to God. Say it with me, would you? We worship you, Jesus, for you have reconciled us to God. So here's the great invitation of Colossians that I want you to consider this week. You are invited into a supreme life in Jesus, a life worth living and a life worth inviting others into. In all ways and in all situations, Jesus is adequate and Jesus is able. Nothing needs to be added to that simple thought. In all ways, in all situations, Jesus is adequate and Jesus is able. And he invites us into this wonderful life. Isn't that great? We don't have to go to Christ with some secret ritual or some way that someone dictates with all these initiations and rules and regulations. We don't have to go to him with misapplied appeasement kind of thinking that I have to do certain types of rituals or, or observe certain kinds of days to be okay with God. We come to God through Jesus alone, amen? And I know this is an old message for some of you, but you need to live like that's your message of your life. And the church, if we're going to be powerful and impactful in today's culture, we cannot lose the simplicity that we are okay with God because of Jesus and that alone. Amen? And we have to say that and live that out loud. This is a life worth living and a life worth inviting others into. Would you bow your heads? We're going to pray.
Lord God, I want to pray today as we end this message that uh, this week would be a week of intentionality for each one of us, that we simply live life on purpose for Jesus. That we're just dogged in that regard, that we're just focused in that regard, that we just hang on to it. Nothing, nothing can separate us from that truth that I am okay with God because I have placed my faith in God's Son, Jesus. And nothing needs to be added to that. It's sufficient. And I pray today, Lord, that we would, we would be people known here at Grace Point as ones who love Jesus, who are crazy in love with Jesus and all about Jesus. I pray that would be the reputation of this gathering of saints, that we would be just that straightforward and simple in how we walk in our faith. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you this morning, and we do declare that you are supreme over all things. And in you all is satisfied, and all is made right with God. We rejoice in that this morning, Jesus. In your name, and all God's people said, amen.